0: Hello! Welcome to Ridiculous Revisions, a podcast to ruin childhood. I'm your host, Chris Hellkamp. Each episode, I take a tale told to children and offer an alternative take. One that will leave the stain on your soul just a little darker than it was before you came here. We know of the tale of Cinderella. We know how she suffered as a servant at the hands of her stepmother and stepsisters after her father remarried. We know how a fairy godmother used magic that would have gotten uglier women burned at the stake to help Cinderella meet the wealthiest available man in the kingdom. We know how her shoe size somehow functioned like a fingerprint, with her feet being the only two feet in the kingdom that fit comfortably into a pair of glass slippers. And we know how, after being identified through aforementioned footwear, she married her way out of the poverty and cruel treatment that plagued her life. Conveniently, That's where people usually stop telling the story. Marrying Rich got a young woman everything she ever needed and wanted. No one ever mentions anything of Cinderella after she settled into life at the royal palace. It's a life that changes a person, and not normally for the better. The first thing that changed for Cinderella was her name. After her marriage to Prince Klaus, she became the Princess Ella von Schnitzel. She was an immediate hit with the common folk. In a time before Powerball and Mega Millions, she represented a fantasy that they too could one day find themselves on the other side of the embroidered boots that kept kicking them down the socioeconomic ladder. Crowds cheered the loudest for her whenever she appeared in public with the prince the nobility was less pleased with this turn of events. They saw Cinderella's marriage as occupying a vital space that could have, at the very least, gone to someone among their own ranks. For many a high-born patriarch, the prince could have married a daughter of theirs, raising their prestige and giving them access to the inner workings of power at the highest levels. For this, the woman that was once treated as the lowest of her own family now found something of the same in her new life at the palace. The wives of palace nobility were probably the worst. In a society where a woman's entire social standing first depended on the wealth of the family she was born into, and later, on the station of her husband, Cinderella's existence was something of a threat to them. A woman of lesser breeding had somehow come from nowhere and passed by them all in an instant to a station above them. In the prince's marriage to Cinderella, the royal family had passed on an opportunity to join themselves with a family that could offer them riches or a strategic alliance with another country. All the royal family appeared to get out of the deal was a big button and a smile. If men from the upper classes started to ignore things like financial gain and political value when looking for a bride, it diluted the market value of the average noblewoman. It was an assault on the noblewoman's worth. Cinderella was mostly ignored by women of the nobility at social gatherings as a consequence. In fact, the women openly gossiped about Cinderella within earshot of her. One remark of note came from the wife of the minister of the treasury, who wondered aloud to a group of other women just how a glass slipper could fit so well over a cloven hoof. Cinderella had one job as a woman marrying into the royal family. She had to produce an heir for her husband. Thankfully, she was lucky enough to be blessed with a healthy baby boy on the first try within a year of getting married. The event was announced with much fanfare, and they named the little ruler to be Johan. Having performed her most pressing royal duty, the princess could rest easy. After the birth, Cinderella would not have much to do with the child, however. Years of her family being cold and distant to her had simply taught her to repeat that pattern with her own offspring. Although she was hoping this would change after the birth, she found that she simply didn't have that love to give after the years she endured under her stepmother. She barely saw the child after handing him off to a wet nurse. As Johann got older, he would know more of the servants that looked after his needs Then he'd know of his own mother. As for Prince Klaus, he lost interest in Cinderella almost as fast as he had gained it. It turns out that, if you're going to marry someone for love and not a strategic alliance against your enemies, then maybe waiting a week wouldn't be such a bad idea. He responded to this change in emotion in the time-honored tradition of royals before him. He took a mistress. Actually, He took several mistresses. Thanks to Klaus's short attention span when it came to women, the stream of lovers never ended. It wasn't really even a secret. It was common for a servant doing their rounds through the palace to stumble on him in a naked embrace with a woman who wasn't the princess. Some of them even were servants. The gossip would find its way to Cinderella, of course. As for her own part, she wasn't stupid. Her bedroom was as cold and quiet as a morgue. She had entertained the idea of taking a paramour on her own, but she knew that, with her being a woman from commoner stock, her dalliances would not be overlooked as easily as the prince's. She found herself increasingly isolated while maintaining the illusion and polite company that she had nothing but love for the prince. Eight years after Cinderella's marriage to Klaus, the king's sedentary lifestyle and hobby of eating generous portions of rich food finally caught up to him. His bloated body was given all of the traditional honors befitting a dead king. There was a funeral ceremony, a customary week of public mourning, and the king took his place in the royal crypt, where he was free to leak his most regal fluids into the stonework. Klaus was crowned king, Cinderella became queen, and little Johann took his father's former title of prince. King Klaus was not the statesman that his father was, however. He kept the same team of advisors from the previous king, but the same inability to think things through that had governed his love life up to that point also reared its ugly head in the way he governed his kingdom. In very short order, he commissioned a series of upgrades to the palace that squeezed the royal coffers, and he levied higher taxes on the people to help pay for it. His decision to charge additional fees on imported goods, against the advice of his minister of commerce, led to the kingdom losing access to valuable resources that it got through international trade. One of these resources was iron. The new king decided the best way to solve the kingdom's reliance on foreign iron would be to annex the neighboring kingdom of Inertia, a country that owed much of its vast fortune to its iron mines. Faust's kingdom, Hubrisia, declared war on Inertia and, much to his surprise, uh, victory was not a slam dunk. It turns out that it's usually not a good idea for one country that's poor on money and materials to attack another country that's rich in both. War between Hubrisia and Inertia dragged on, despite Inertia's obvious advantage. But a certain terrible decision that Klaus made in his life before becoming king would be his and his family's ultimate undoing. Before his marriage to Cinderella, Klaus was arranged to be married to a princess of the nation of Fetusia. As with most noble marriages, love was not the goal. It was purely a move intended to solidify ties between the two nations. But Fetusia was a relatively small and weak country. Then Prince Klaus was fully aware of his impending arranged marriage when he met Cinderella at that fateful ball. Still, he thought it would be a novel idea to marry a woman he had met in person and that he actually liked. As if he were somehow the first royal child that had ever thought of this. When then-Prince Klaus expressed his intention to find and marry Cinderella to his father, the old king ultimately decided that, eh, Petusia didn't really bring much to the table, so losing an alliance with them wouldn't be much of a loss. As expected, Petusian royalty was not happy with the decision to call off the marriage between Klaus and its princess. Still, they maintained diplomatic ties with Hubrisia, but they did not forget this insult. The Fetusian princess in question was later married off to a prince of Inertia, and an alliance was formed between those two kingdoms. So, later, when Hubrisia declared war on Inertia, the Fetusians were forced to pick a side. It doesn't take a genius to guess which one they picked. Fetusia didn't have much in the way of wealth to contribute to the war, but they did have subterfuge. Fetusia sent spies into Hubrisia's borders to foment rebellion among the lower classes. It turns out that years of mismanagement under Klaus's reign had left the people starving and angry. The Fetusian spies smuggled weapons into Hubrisia, courtesy of Inertia, and freely distributed them to groups of conspirators. Soon, Hubrisia not only had a costly and ill-prepared war beyond its borders to manage, but it had a kingdom-wide civil rebellion on its hands, too. Violent uprisings in the capital left statues smashed, buildings burned, and no shortage of casualties. The well-armed mobs reached the gates of the royal palace. The palace guards, who were understaffed and had ceased to be paid in the wake of the treasury's dwindling finances, Simply open the gate and abandon their posts. Bands of ordinary citizens holding torches, sharp farming tools, and smuggled swords and spears stalked the halls shouting for blood. They systematically went from room to room, killing anyone in expensive clothing. King Klaus managed to escape the palace through the servant passages, but he was never heard from again. Klaus's and Cinderella's son, Prince Johann, was not so lucky. Rebels found the young boy hiding in his quarters with his nanny. His body would later be paraded through the streets by the mob to signal the end of the royal line. Cinderella heard the mob approaching her quarters well before they got there. She heard the people's cries to, Stick all the pigs! She heard the final screams of nobles and servants. Her room was too high from the ground to escape out the window, and she would be seen as soon as she stepped out the door into the hall. Even if she had an avenue of escape, though, she wouldn't have taken it. She couldn't fathom going back to anything resembling her old life, toiling away in filth for scraps to live on. She would decide her own fate, and she would use the very thing that came to symbolize her entry into this life. She rushed to the wardrobe in her room, knelt down, and pulled out a pair of dusty glass slippers. Years ago, they were her saving grace. Now. She saw in them the naivety of her youth. She grabbed one slipper by the toe and brought it down on the floor. Nothing happened. Her initial blow was too light. She struck harder, then even harder. The back of the glass slipper shattered, leaving her with the jagged front end. With a trembling hand that betrayed her resolve, she pressed a shard to her throat. That's it for this episode of Ridiculous Revisions. This episode was written and produced by me, Chris Hellcamp. The website for this podcast isn't set up yet, but if you have any questions or feedback, send an email to chris at ridiculousrevisions.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at ridiculousrevisions.com. I'm also available on Twitter under the username RidiculousRevs. Thanks for listening.